Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, if you will, let's get back to Mark 13, because we've got a little bit to do this morning. Um, There's no other division really here. I'd love to make it a shorter uh, section that we could focus on. But I can't put a division where God doesn't put one, and I don't want to leave you hanging. I feel like I already am a little bit, but we're going to break at verse 31 and then finish the chapter next week. Do you know that God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the future? Does anybody here like to know what is ahead? I do. I like to know what's going to happen later today, tomorrow. Um, God tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that he has set eternity in the human heart. We all know that down deep that the life we are currently living is not all there is. Even those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, even those who are not born again, who are still controlled by their sin nature, they have this same desire to know what is ahead. They might turn to astrology or, or horoscopes or fortune tellers, some other pointless attempt. But the Christian, you know what we have? We have the sure word of God uh, to inform us what is ahead. And that's what Jesus tells his disciples about and what he teaches us in the passage that we're going to study together this morning. There are some Christians, I have met them, I have listened to them, uh, and they're brothers in Christ, love them to death. There are Christians who hyperfixate on what we call eschatology, the the study of the end times. Their favorite book is Revelation. Um, I believe that there's less of those than there were decades ago. In, in my opinion, if we have an issue, if we have a problem in the church related to the end times, uh, it's the opposite problem that, that mo- many Christians today, f- far from being so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Many Jesus followers today rarely think of what is ahead or they find that what God's word teaches, it's too confusing. It takes too much effort. And so they just let it be. Uh, I don't believe it is. It definitely takes some effort to know what is ahead. We're going to see that this morning and this evening. Um, But if there's confusion, I believe it's the result of Satan muddying waters that can be rather clear. If we handle God's word, and this is a key part, if we handle God's word properly, consistently, we handle it consistently, and with a genuine desire to know it. Doesn't God want us to know what he's given us in his word? Of course he does. And so um, you have an insert in your bulletin. I'd encourage you, if you're going to be here tonight, uh, please bring that along. We'll reference it a little bit this morning. It's really for you to understand what we at Dublin First Baptist Church um, believe about the end times, what God is teaching, what Jesus is going to even teach in this passage. Uh, We read this passage earlier, and before we take sections of it together to study, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you want us to know what is ahead. Um, You don't give us all the details. We'd sure like them, Lord, but you give us what you want us to know, and you give us what we need to know to live our lives for your glory and to accomplish your mission. God, I pray that... um, what we learn in your word uh, this morning, 
uh, tonight and even next Sunday as we finish this chapter, what we learn here would do what studying the end times does, that it would propel us to be uh, serving on mission, uh, making the gospel known, and then that it would also sanctify us, that it put uh, those who have trusted you as Savior uh, in a state of expectation and anticipation, watchfulness and readiness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we begin uh, picking this apart, it's essential that we come to this passage, any passage of God's word, but especially, especially this one with a correct historical context. Um, and so to start, Jesus is Jewish. Is that a surprise to anyone? No, okay, Jesus uh, is Jewish. Uh, here and in parallel accounts in Matthew 24 and 25 and in Luke 21, basically talks about the same thing. Mark, you know, he's fast. He does a straightway thing. We basically get a Cliff Notes version of Matthew 24 and 25, a little bit smaller than Luke 21. Jesus, Jewish Jesus, begins by speaking here to Jewish people. What he describes in the first 25 verses that we read this morning, that we'll study this morning, it is important information for Christians like you and I here in 2021 to know, and Christians in all ages, but it's essential that we understand it is written to us, but not, is written for us, but not necessarily to us. That's going to change here as we go throughout this. Well, there's a big division that we're going to see here uh, where we end up this morning. That is written uh, to us and for us. But right now, these first 25 verses, they're not written about us, and they're not written to us. They are written for us. Those Christians who believe, and there are some, and they'll be in heaven with us, all right? There are Christians who believe that the church, that you and I will experience what verses 5 through 27 describe. And those Christians that believe that, they have failed to recognize this important distinction. The church is not Israel. The church is not new Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. Uh, the verse we're going to close with this morning, verse 31, it reminds us that the promises of God to his people Israel, that the covenants God made with them, they are not fulfilled in and they are not transferred over to the church of Jesus Christ. There are similarities. There's no doubt there's similarities between Israel and the church. But there are also important distinctions. And if we do not recognize those distinctions, it will inevitably lead to Christians getting that idea that verses 5 through 27 apply to us and that we will go through the tribulation, that we will go through what is described here. It leads to the belief that the rapture that is promised in God's word either happens midway through the tribulation or at the very end of it. And we'll discuss more on that next week and more on that later this evening. And especially if you have questions, look, if you hear what I'm saying this morning and what we're studying, you're like, I don't know about that. What about this? Come tonight, ask those questions. Um, if you disagree, come tonight and tell me why you disagree. Sometimes Baptists disagree. Did you know that? <laughs> it's happened before. I can think of a few times. All right. It's okay. That's how we learn. Uh, we'll learn together. What Jesus describes here first to these disciples who were both Jewish and soon-to-be members of the soon-to-be church is this. He's describing life here when we are not here. Uh, in verses 1 through 8, especially verses 1 through 4, pretty simple to understand. Probably the most simple part of this whole chapter. 
like other Jewish people, these disciples, they were amazed by, and they loved their temple. It was amazing um, in appearance. There was this massive, glorious structure. And that's what they're calling Jesus' attention to. In verse 1, as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, they say, Jesus, look at this glorious temple. Uh, Just amazed by its apparent magnificence. Verse 2, though, teaches us that Jesus was not as wowed by it as they were. Um, He says, yeah, I see it. Wasn't as wild as they were, though, with good reason, right? For, for one, we know that it is very customary for human beings to look on the outside appearance while God is way more concerned with what is inside. And what had Jesus found on the inside as described in the last two chapters? I mean, he had to go turn over tables. <laughs> he had to cast thieves, money changers, people who were defrauding others out. He found hollow, hypocritical, ritualistic religion occurring. Um, The religious leaders had taken God's intended house of prayer. That's what Jesus told those um, people. And they had turned it into a den of thieves. Heartless worship was the norm. Hypocritical worship was standard. And so in verse 2, Jesus foretells the complete destruction of this glorious but godless artifice. It was an artifice. It was artificial. And that would happen. We know historically that happened in AD 70. The Roman emperor Titus, he came in and and with his army, came in in Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Exactly as Jesus described there, not one stone left on top of the other. You can go there today and you can see the foundation of it. That's the wailing wall. But you don't see anything like these disciples said, Jesus, look at this thing. This revelation from Jesus to them, that this glorious temple that they just love so much that it would be destroyed, uh, it obviously uh, was a cause of great concern for his disciples. And so as, as Jesus ascended to the Mount of Olives, four of those disciples, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they asked Jesus for more info. When will this happen, Jesus? And what will be the sign that what you say is about to happen is going to come true? So now, in verses 5 to 27, like many, at least most, prophecies in God's Word, they have a near fulfillment, something that happens rather quickly as far as time goes, and they often have a future fulfillment. I've already mentioned that in A.D. 70. That was a near fulfillment. Titus and the Roman army came in and destroyed that. But Jesus uses this opportunity to now leap forward much further, much further into the future. There are some Christians who believe everything Jesus said here is about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, as we're going to study this together, I think you'll notice that that's an impossibility. Like a lot of what was just described, that did not happen in AD 70. Um, it happened much later, or it will happen much later. And, and what Jesus is describing here um, happens when we, <laughs> when we are not here. Jesus is telling his Jewish, his Jewish disciples what will happen when God ends the pause that we are currently in. See, he had a pause with the, his dealings with his people Israel. Um, the pause during which he has been dealing now with his people, the church, uh, is done. That's what Jesus is describing in verses 5 through 27. There will come a time when his dealings with the church is done. 
and his dealings with his people Israel begin again. And that happens when we are taken away. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus pleads. He pleads with his people Israel to take heed. And, and that's an important thing I want you to notice because when we hear of his message to the church next week, he no longer says take heed. His, his message to the church is this, watch, watch, watch. Right now, three different times, he says take heed, take heed, take heed to what I am teaching. He's speaking to Jewish people. He's speaking to those who have not received Jesus as their Savior prior to the rapture of the church. They, they, not us, but they are going to experience what he described. They're going to experience that. The seven-year uh, period of tribulation that the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation calls the tribulation. And it has signs. It has signs that announce its arrival. That's what verses 5 through 8 describe. First of all, verse 6 tells us there will be great deception. So before the tribulation begins, even before the rapture occurs and the church is taken away, there's going to be a few signs to look for. Verse 6, there will be great deception, specifically about who God is and what God offers us and what he promises us. It'll happen before the tribulation even starts. It'll happen before the rapture even starts. Great deception. Do we see that today? Is there great deception? Is there fake news? Everywhere. <laughs> uh, you pick your favorite channel. It's there. It's great deception, but specifically about God and who he is and who Jesus is and what he offers us. Then verses 7 and 8 tell us that another sign is there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars. There will also be an increase in natural disasters and, and suffering. Not just more of them, but more of them in all different kinds of places. Now, honestly, this has been the experience of humanity ever since we sinned and rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. But, but Jesus is promising here a, a definite escalation of these events as the tribulation arrives. Are we experiencing that? Wars and rumors of wars? Are we experiencing more natural disasters? I would say, yeah. I mean, 47, at least before, more than I've ever experienced in my lifetime. All right, so please understand that this does not mean we are in the tribulation. Please notice, at the end of both of those verses, it says that these happened prior, even prior to the rapture of the church. It says the end is not yet. These are just the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pangs. In fact, God's word tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in Revelation that immediately after the rapture, there won't be war. Instead, there will be a brief period of peace, at least apparent peace or promised peace. Those are the signs. In verses 9 to 27, Jesus highlights the suffering that will occur then. I think verse 9 is one of the major turning points in this passage, maybe the first main division. We know that this was true. Their suffering has always been a part of, of both Jews and Gentiles throughout uh, Scripture, of both God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament, Christians, His church, uh, that was experienced in, in definitely in the second half of the first century. But, but what is described here in verses 9 to 27, it fits so perfectly with the suffering that the final book of Revelation describes taking place during the seven-year tribulation period after the rapture of the church. Do you understand that during the tribulation period, there will be people who are saved during that time? In fact, God's whole design and the suffering, this, this terrible stuff that he sends and is allowing here, his whole design is to turn 
Israel, his people, to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, to, to finally be ready to receive him at his second coming instead of rejecting him like they did the first time. Jews and Gentiles will be saved during this terrible seven-year period. But it'll be the most difficult time ever to be a Christian. Um, I sure wouldn't want to attempt to make my decision then. In fact, I personally don't believe that anyone who has rejected Jesus Christ prior to the rapture, prior to this start, I don't believe that they will receive him as Savior then. It'll just be too hard to be a Christian. Uh, both the deception will be too great. The cost will be too great. It's tough to be a Christian now. I can't imagine having to try to live out your faith then. Verses 9 to 13, it talk up, talks about people's own family members betraying them. To the point of having them arrested, having them killed. Verse 13 promises that people of both ethnic Jewish descent and saved Jewish and Gentile people, during this time they will be hated of all men for my name's sake. There's Christians who are hated now. This is total. And, and only those, it says only those who endure in their faith, only those who don't deny Christ amid all this persecution, only those who make it through this time or who are martyred for their faith, they will be saved. Only those who do that. I don't want to be here for that. Do you? <laughs> I'm so glad God's word teaches that I don't have to be if I will receive Jesus Christ as my Savior now. Now. I mentioned it earlier, but that the beginning, the beginning of the seven-year period, it is bad, but not as bad as the second half. A brief time of peace. I mean, really what we call the great tribulation, it's that final three and a half years. And, and in verse 14, Jesus teaches that right in the middle of this seven-year period of tribulation, in, in what is known as Daniel's 70th week, the Antichrist, who made a covenant uh, of peace with God's people at the beginning of the tribulation. In Daniel chapter 9, it teaches that he's going to break it. And that's what it says in verse 14. The Antichrist is going to break that covenant. The whole world loved him. They wanted and needed a unifying and, and captivating leader. He achieved what nobody else has been able to in the history of humanity. Peace in the Middle East. But the Jewish temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem during that time, he enters it and he demands that the entire world worship him as God. We're primed for that, folks. We're not in it, but this world is primed for it. In my lifetime, I've never seen our whole world with such weak leadership. United States and the church get outside the United States. I can't think of a single world leader who could become the Antichrist right now. And I think God is sovereignly uh, causing that to prepare a world so that when somebody comes up and just does, it just acts like a leader, period. He doesn't even have to be that great of a leader. He's just got to lead. Because everybody now, no, no one's doing it. We're ready. The world is ready to accept a leader like this. In verses 15 and 20, Jesus tells the ethnic Jews and the Christian Jews and Gentiles who are saved during this time, who are alive during this event, that it's time to bug out. When you see this, when you see the Antichrist break this covenant and enter the temple, and instead of worshiping God, demand that the whole worship, world worship bow down to him, it's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to flee into the wilderness. That's because that last, that last three and a half years is going to be the worst. What the seal judgments that Revelation describes, what the, the trumpet judgments describe, uh, what they haven't destroyed, the bold judgments will. 
And I don't mean to be insensitive, but it will make the suffering and death of our current pandemic look like a party. That's how bad it will be. It's the horrible truth. It's the promise of God. And listen, it is the warning of God. Don't get scared. This is the warning of God. It's his grace. You don't have to be scared if you trust Christ as Savior. Now you won't be here. He's describing life here when we are not here. But it should motivate us to share the gospel with others that they may trust Christ as Savior. Listen, there will be so few saved during this time. I mean, spiritually and eternally, even fewer physically. That's what verse 20 promises. Let's read it. And except that the Lord had shortened these days, no flesh, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, those who are saved during the seven-year tribulation period, whom he hath chosen, he shortened these days. So few saved. Deception, false teaching, that's the cause. It, honestly, it's what got us in the mess we're currently in, isn't it? Genesis chapter 3, we were deceived. We listened to false teaching. Um, it's only going to be amplified during this time. As bad as it is now, and when you're like, I don't know if this is real or not. Let me have, find a citation. Is this fake news? Is this real news? It's going to be way worse then. You won't have the truth that we have now. And this frightening section, it closes in verse 24 to 27 and describes the very end, the very end of this seven-year tribulation period, the very end of the great tribulation. The whole world, the entire solar system is literally shaken. Verses 24 to 25. And then Jesus Christ returns in verses 26 to 27. Now, I want you to understand something because sometimes we use uh, terminology and we could cause confusion. But, but when it's talking about Christ's return in verses 26 to 27, this is the second coming. This is the second advent of Jesus Christ. His first advent is when he came down, all right, Christmas time, Bethlehem. His second advent, is advent, his second coming, is when he comes down to earth. That's not the rapture. You understand that? That's different. That happens after. The rapture happens first. Um, Jesus doesn't return to the earth at the rapture. Where does he come for us? He comes for us in the air, right? Um, that's where the church, where those who've trusted in Christ before this time of tribulation, before what verses 5 to 27 are describing, we meet him in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And we're told in that verse, I love this, the dead in Christ, those in, in history past who have trusted in Jesus as Savior, they go to meet him first. Their bodies are, are resurrected from the grave at the rapture. They're given a new, eternal, glorified body. It's, it's immediately reunited with their spirit that is currently right now in heaven with Jesus from the moment that they died. And then us, if we're still alive at the time of the rapture, then you and I, we who are alive and remain, we will be caught up. Caught up in a way. We will be caught up with them together. To meet Jesus in the air, and we will be with him together forever, and we will be with them together forever. Those two words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, caught up. Uh, the Greek word harpazo, uh, translated to Latin, one of the first languages the Bible is translated into, raptura. That's where we get the English word rapture, and we'll talk more about it tonight, next Sunday, as we close out this chapter. But this is where um, 
we have a big, big division that we need to focus on. If you don't mind marking in your Bible, I would like you to take a, a pen or a pencil or something and draw this tiny little line between the end of verse 27 and verse 28. There's an important division or break here that will help us understand that Jesus is talking to different people in verses 5 to 27, and the rest of the chapter he begins talking to us. The same is true in Matthew's account and in Luke's account. Uh, there's the same separation. Uh, Jesus has a pause here, uh, a division, much like the pause that we are currently in as the, his church, a pause in his dealings with the nation of Israel. Jesus moves from talking to his disciples as Jews and speaking in verses 5 through 27, to the Jewish people who, unlike them, will be here during the tribulation period because they haven't trusted Christ as Savior. But Jesus now, beginning verse 28, he begins talking to them as Jewish Christians. These four, they're ethnically Jewish, but spiritually they're Jesus followers. And thus they're a part of the church that would come into being in about 40 days from this point. So beginning in verse 28, the message of Jesus is not just for us, it is now to us. And it's about life here when the rapture is near. And we have signs as well, really though just one, as many into one at least. Jesus asked them and he asked every Christian uh, to do something specific here in verse 28. He says, learn a parable. And what is a parable? What's the nice Sunday school definition? An earthly story with a Heavenly meaning. I'm looking at Jordan because he always gets these, right? Uh, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's what it is. Jesus calls our attention to a fig tree. Um, but this is not a horticulture lesson. It has a much deeper meaning. In verses 28 to 29, Jesus teaches that just as, just as the life and vibrancy and buds and leaves uh, that are sprouting in a fig tree are indicative that spring it is now moving into summer, giving way to summer. When, verse 29, when you see these things come to pass, we should know that all of this is near. It's nigh. It is at the doors, actually. Jesus is talking about when. That was one of their questions. When will this happen and what is the sign? If we are going to understand this sign that God wants us to know for what is ahead, this sign that Jesus calls our attention to in this parable, He's interjected it here. He's divided it here. We have to identify at least two important things. What or who is the fig tree? And then secondly, what or who is this generation? Now, there's a lot of opinions about how to answer both of these. Among Christians in general, even among Christians and Baptists who teach the word of God exactly like we do here. I can only tell you that after, honestly, after years of study, after grateful instruction by people I trust, that I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus is clearly teaching here. If you disagree, that's okay. In fact, like I said, come tonight so we can engage in discussion and learn together. I believe that Jesus is clearly teaching here that the fig tree is Israel. Now, one of my favorite theologians, um, Tommy and Ray, we, me, we all have the same Bible, the Ryrie Study Bible. It's a great study Bible. If you go down to the notes right here, my favorite theologian, Charles Ryrie, says, Israel is not the fig tree. I don't think he's right. There's a bunch of others who agree that, no, it is. Um, just two chapters ago, in chapter 11, before Jesus cleansed the temple, he's just come into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, 
They're singing Hosanna. They're receiving him as their king. And he's going to the temple to cleanse it. And he walks by a fig tree. Do you remember this? It was probably back in June. Like it's just taking us a while to get from there uh, to here. But uh, right back in, in Mark 11, 11, Jesus sees a fig tree there in the distance on the same mountain that he's on right now. Uh, full of green leaves. And so it should have been full of what? Fruit. Yeah, it should have been full of fruit. Was it? No. It looked beautiful. It looked magnificent even on the outside. But it was fruitless and empty and worthless. Does that sound familiar? Even in this passage here, verses 1 to 4? Temple. Look at this temple, Jesus. It's amazing. On the outside, it is. Jesus cursed that fig tree, much like he foretold the destruction of this temple, the centerpiece, the symbol of Israel. Back in verses 1 to 4, a fig tree with no fruit? Jesus says, fine, you'll never bear fruit again. Empty, pointless religion? Fine, stay empty. It's time for a pause. It's time to do something new. And Israel was empty. They were empty then. They were even more empty in AD 70 when, when the city was raised. In fact, the nation of Israel in regard to a land, it stayed that way. It's people dispersed throughout the world. Until recently, well, what I call recently, 1948, to be exact. The country was restored. People who were dispersed right after World War II, they've been brought back. That's been happening ever since, all the way up until this morning. What was once known as, as Palestine and really wasn't much more than this rural uh, desert that's been under the control of various empires for 2,000 years. What's Israel like now? Some of you have been there. What's Israel like now, Mike? It's prosperous, isn't it? Green, fertile, agriculturally prosperous. Olive trees. Olive trees. Fig trees. Modern technology. That's what it is like. Israel's land has been restored and Israel's people back. What, what was once desolate is now showing vibrant signs of life. Kind of like this budding fig tree. And Jesus. Drip irrigation. He did. Jesus says, when you see this, when you see this, know that all of this is near. It's even at the doors. His return in the air for the church, our rapture, our being caught up, and all of these things described in verses 5 through 27 that will follow it. It's near. It's at the door. Do you believe it is? I promise you this, even if you don't think that I got it right here this morning. It's nearer than it's ever been. Amen? Every day. <laughs> Every day we're getting nearer. For, for us, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we do not need to worry about what is described in verses 5 through 27 because it was written for us to know, but not about us, not for us to experience. We won't be here. But when we see, when we see life in this fig tree, what is ahead for us? Not suffering. Our salvation, verses 30 to 31, again, talking specifically here to four disciples who are not only Jewish ethnically, but also Jesus' followers. Jesus tells them and us, verse 30, Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all of these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, there's as many opinions on the second 
thing we need to identify here? What is this generation? As there is about the fig tree of the prior verse. And again, after study and after uh, gratitude to people who know way more than I do, I can only tell you what I believe this means, what Jesus is teaching here. There are times in God's word that that word generation, it refers to an entire ethnicity, an entire group of people. Uh, so there's plenty of times uh, that it refers to the whole Jewish uh, ethnic uh, group. But there are also many times that this specific word refers to the average lifespan of a human being. That's our normal usage for it today. So as a result, we probably ought to begin there with that, the average lifespan of men. Jesus says in verse 30, this generation shall not pass or shall not die off until all of these things are done. Well, who is this generation? Is it the four disciples? Can't be. Did all of this happen before they passed on and went to heaven? Does the Antichrist come in to the temple and demand everybody worship him? Well, it can't be referring to them. I mean, the rapture hasn't happened. The tribulation hasn't happened. The, all these things here haven't happened. And what are these things? Well, that's a, this is a tough passage. If these things refer to verses 1 to 29, then generation may mean an entire ethnic group of people. But just consider... Uh, if these things refers to the budding and the springing to life of the fig tree as well, and I think it does, well, then these things really refer to the budding and springing to life of Israel. Again, pay attention. God says here that this generation, the generation that witnesses that, will not pass before all of these things be done. This generation, if we understand that term in line with the more prevalent usage of a human lifespan, what might that indicate? Church, it means that our salvation is nigh. It's even at the door. Back in Psalm 90, verses 9 through 10, the oldest psalm in the Bible, Moses was the human author, God inspired to write it. God tells us there that the days of our lives are 70 years, if by reason of strength, maybe 80. I mean, that's typical even today, isn't it? The average human lifespan, 70 to 80 years. Some are even blessed with more. That's a generation. The fig tree is Israel. And when the fig tree springs from dormancy to, to life, Jesus gives us in this passage a heads up that the generation that witnesses that will not pass until all this has happened. He's describing life here when the rapture is near. It is foolishness to try to set a date for the rapture. I am not doing that this morning. Many people have done that. We're still here. I'm not doing that. Uh, instead, the Bible see, tells us, see it as imminent. It could happen any moment. It could happen before we're done here today. Some of you might be hoping that it does. Jesus says in verse 32, and we're going to study this again next week, no man, no man knows the day or the hour. The angels don't. Jesus himself didn't, at least while he was here on earth. Only the God the Father, only God the Father knows. So no man knows the day or the hour. But do you understand that Christ's whole point in telling us everything here in chapter 13, the entirety of it, his whole answer in his uh, response to the disciples' questions is so that they would know, so that you and I even would know, we could recognize at least generally when things like this were about to kick off. Vital, vital to belief in an imminent return of Christ at any moment. And remember, God writes to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5. God's word says there to Christians, you know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a what? Thief in the night. It'll be a surprise. But then he goes on to say, but you are not in darkness. Christian, you are not in darkness that that day should surprise 
you like a thief, that that day should overtake you. Why? Because Jesus has told us the signs of what to look for. We don't know the day or the hour, but Jesus here and other places in God's word, he does give us signs or indications of what it will be like when it is near. And that's exactly what I believe verses 28 to 31 are teaching us. 1948, that fig tree, Israel, it sprang to life. The generation is 70 to 80 years, according to Psalm 90. Do the math. Maybe some of you have already. Do the math. Don't set a date. If I'm not asking you to do. Um, don't set a day or hour. We're actually commanded not to. But do realize this. You're not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. Jesus answered the question of his followers with everything they needed to know, including us, all that we need to know to be ready. Verse 31, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You can count on God's word. Every word from God that was spoken and written up until this point and after, including the promises he made to his people Israel that have not been fulfilled yet. They're not fulfilled in the church. They won't be. They're for them. That there would be a pause. He promised that. That Gentiles would be grafted in. That there would be an intermission in God's dealings with them as a people. But then there would also be an end to that pause. There'll be a time when his church is caught up and we're caught away. And his plan and his purpose for Israel is unpaused. And what we're reading about in 5 through 27, as tough as it is, it's the loving grace of God giving them one more chance to receive Jesus, to recognize him as their Messiah. Are you ready? There might be someone here who's never trusted Christ as Savior. And if that's the case, verses 5 through 27 are for you right now. They don't have to be. Man, don't go through that. Not when the Holy Spirit is using the word of God to call you to repent in faith this morning. Trust him as Savior. You can do it right now as I'm speaking. If you've got questions, ask me, Tommy, Daniel, somebody here. But don't leave today without knowing that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. Are you ready, Christian? We're going to speak a lot more about this next week in the last verses of this chapter. Our state of readiness. But here's the problem. I don't know if we'll be here next week. Amen? We might not be. <laughs> so are you ready, Christian? What a privilege. I think it's a privilege to be a part of this generation that gets to see all these things. I mean, I could have been born in 1500s, not have a toothbrush, and not know what bold peanuts are. We get to be in this generation that gets to witness all these things. But we don't have long. We do not have long. That has been my burden since I came to this church what does it mean to be ready as a saved, born-again Christian? It means watching. We're going to find out. That's what Jesus says. There's no more take heed in the rest of these verses. It's watch, 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 because he's speaking to somebody different than he was in verses 5 to 27. What does it mean? Anticipating. That's what it means. Joyfully anticipating. Not, it does not mean, watching does not mean sitting back waiting. It does not mean that. No, it means actively serving in the mission that he's given us. Jesus said in a parable in Luke 19, Occupy until I come. That is his message for the church. Occupy until I come. That's his command to his followers. Represent him. Represent his kingdom to those who are here. Tell them they don't have to be here. Tell them that the rapture is near. That's how we occupy until he comes. I'm going to ask Tommy to come and lead us in a hymn of invitation. We're to occupy right up until that day when we are caught up and away. 
And I'll tell you what, I don't want to be caught doing anything else.